You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 16. We'll be in John 16 this morning. Last week in John 15, we saw a strong, straightforward warning from Jesus. He warned his disciples about the hatred of the world. And history will attest to the truth of his warning that was not only for those 11 disciples, but also for all future followers of Jesus. For nearly 2,000 years now, Christians have experienced persecution, injustice, and even death for their faith in Christ. But it shouldn't be a surprise at all. It shouldn't be a surprise to anyone of any time because Jesus told us it would happen. The world would hate us because it first hated him. And this morning, we're going to pick up in John 16 as Jesus continues this warning, but he follows it up with a promise that he'll send a helper. And this is the second great passage or teaching from Jesus concerning the Holy Spirit. We saw the other one a few weeks ago in John 14. And today again, we see Jesus explaining the work of the coming Holy Spirit. So begin reading with me in John 16, verse 1. Jesus says this, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they'll do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, then you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Remember, chapters 13 through 17 contain Jesus' final words to his disciples. And the main reason behind all of it is summed up here in verse 1, where he says, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. The disciples are about to go through several days of extreme stress and worry and fear and despair. It will seem like everything is falling apart. So what Jesus is teaching them is to prepare them to survive the coming trial, to not abandon their faith in the midst of it. They'll be put to the ultimate test. But if they remember his words, what he told them, they will endure. And he warns them that there will be those that will kick them out of the synagogue. And for the first century Jewish person, that, that, is, that is bad. That is everything. The synagogue was all of life for them. They were basically going to be shut out of all Jewish life, religiously, socially, and politically. But not only that, he warns them that there will eventually be people that will kill them and when they kill them, they'll do it thinking they are offering service to God. They'll think they're actually doing a good thing by killing them. We see this first, of course, come to fruition in Jesus' own death. The whole case against Jesus was that he was a blasphemer. 
They claimed that he was saying things that were dishonoring about God. They were disgracing God. And on top of that, they claimed he was leading others to do the same. And so these Jewish leaders, they thought that by killing Jesus, they were actually doing a good thing for God. The Apostle Paul, he's a great example too. Before his conversion, he gives a perfect picture of, of this same hatred that's actually thought to be done in service to God. In Galatians 1.13, Paul describes his former self this way. He says, You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. It was Paul's misguided zeal and passion for God's law that was his motivation for actually killing God's church. He thought he was doing a good thing for God. And Jesus warns the disciples that this will happen. And again, he says these things so that when it actually occurs, they won't be surprised. They, they will be prepared. And when it does come to pass, they will remember what he told them in advance so they won't fall away and abandon their faith. And perhaps the disciples are thinking, maybe what you're thinking why did Jesus wait until this night to tell them these things? They've been together almost three full years. So why wait till now to finally give them this warning? And I believe you can trace two reasons through the gospel. The first is that the disciples first needed to know who Jesus was. They needed to know how great Jesus was before they found out how bad things could get. And we see this throughout Jesus' ministry, that he is gradually revealing more and more to the disciples. He reveals more of his power as God to the disciples. He reveals more of God's purposes in the world. And all along the way, he actually does drop hints concerning his death, even though they don't understand it at the time. But he's gradually leading them into a deeper faith first. And then the second reason Jesus hadn't talked like this before is because he didn't need to. Look at the second part of verse 4. It says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Think of John's gospel. We've been in it for quite a while now. We've read of multiple times where the Jews were trying to arrest Jesus, where they, were, they had stones in their hands ready to, to put him to death there on the spot. But do we ever read of the disciples being harassed or arrested or or um, trying to be attacked. And no, we don't. We don't read about that. Jesus was there, and he was the one always under attack. Their hate and hostility was directed at him. And so he was kind of a shield for the disciples. But he's telling these, these things to them now because he's leaving. He'll no longer be there to absorb the attacks from the Jews and others. The disciples will now be on the receiving end of their hostility. And all that has led up to this moment... In this conversation in verse 6, where it describes, Jesus says this, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So the supper that began probably with a lot of joy, they're having fun, commemorating the Passover that's coming, and then Jesus sets the example of, of serving them by washing their feet, but now it says sorrow has filled your heart. They are experiencing a painful sorrow, a legitimate grief because of the things Jesus has told them. And just, just to recount what he has told them in this one supper, 
He began by telling them that one of their very own would betray him. And then he was going to go somewhere that they couldn't follow him. And then he told Peter that Peter would deny him three times before the end of the night. And then finally, he emphasized how much the world hates him and that it will hate them in return. That's quite a bit to drop on them in one conversation. And try to imagine if the person that you love the most in the world and trust the most in the world all of a sudden told you that they're leaving and that you can't go with them. And they make it sound like some terrible things are going to happen both to them and to you. It would be, it'd be a, a devastating, a very emotional conversation. And these disciples, they've given up everything to follow Jesus. They've seen the evidence that he is the son of God. They've placed all their hopes in him, but now he's leaving them. This isn't the way they were thinking it would end. And that's why verse 7 sounds so strange when Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. I mean, what are you talking about, Jesus? How can it possibly in any way be a good thing that you're leaving? And not just a good thing, he actually says a better thing. It's to your advantage. You better believe the disciples did not understand that statement at all at the time. He is the Messiah, the Holy One of God. He can heal the paralytic, give sight to the blind, raise the dead, command the winds and the waves. What could be better than having this guy with them? But Jesus tells him it's better that he goes away because then and only then can he send them the helper. That is the Holy Spirit. And in fact, he says if he doesn't leave, then the Holy Spirit won't come. I don't think too much into that. It's, it's not like there's a, a metaphysical reason that Jesus and the Holy Spirit can't be in the same place. But the, really, the real reason is actually something much bigger than that. The, the reasons are tied up in the kingdom of God and his plan for redemption. There's many prophecies in the Old Testament referring to a day when God pours out his spirit on the world. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And then verse 27, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and careful to obey my rules. Then in Joel 2.28, it says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. In God's perfect plan, the Holy Spirit comes as a continuation and fulfillment of the work that Christ began. And we'll see that more at the end of this passage. And notice something, as Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, he never calls the Holy Spirit an it. He calls the Holy Spirit him and he. He says, I will send him to you. He will convict the world. We need to think rightly about the Holy Spirit. We want to be good theologians. Every single one of you is actually a theologian, whether you know it or not. Everyone has some belief, some understanding about God, even the atheist, even though I would say they're a pretty poor theologian. But we want to be good theologians, and that includes thinking rightly about the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit isn't an impersonal it. Sometimes we can find ourselves talking about the Holy Spirit as if it's more like something from Star Wars, like the Force, you know, that you can tap into this power. But the Bible actually shows the Holy Spirit to be a person, just like the Father and the Son. So just wanted to get that out there. And Jesus actually says it's better, it's to their advantage that he leaves so the Holy Spirit can come. See, God is about to do something that he's never done before. He's about to pour out his spirit on all 
his people. His presence will no longer be relegated to one particular temple. Instead, now every believer is a home in a temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was limited by time and space. He was God taken on human form, and even after his resurrection remains in his human body, even though it's glorified. And that's great, but the disciples only have him when he's with them. But now with the Holy Spirit residing within us, we have God's power and presence at all times. And as we saw a few weeks ago, the Holy Spirit now mediates the presence of Christ in the lives of us as believers. And that's why it's actually better that Jesus leaves so the Spirit can come. But then we have a few interesting verses that follow. We usually think of the Holy Spirit in terms of what he does in the lives of believers and how he comforts us, he empowers us, he gives us gifts for service within the body. But here in verses 8 through 11, it describes what the Holy Spirit does in the world in general. And it says, he convicts the world concerning three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Let's, let's look at each of these areas. First, the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin. Verse 9 says, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Remember, the Holy Spirit primarily continues the work of Christ. And Jesus did convict the world of sin. In the Gospels, Jesus is constantly exposing people's sins to them. In John 7, 7, Jesus said, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify it that its acts are evil. One of the main reasons the world hates Jesus is because he told them the truth about sin. He exposed their evil and wickedness to them. And the Holy Spirit now takes up that same work in the world. And, and in particular, the, the world and the Jews have largely rejected Jesus. As he says, they did not believe me. And understand that this is a gracious conviction. The Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin with the purpose of turning those hearts to repentance that leads to salvation. It's the Spirit alone that can bring this conviction. And Notice conviction is different than regret. You can regret all kinds of things, but regret usually revolves around the consequences. You regret you did something because it had a negative consequence for you. You're sorry that you did it because of how it affected you. The Holy Spirit doesn't bring regret. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. And conviction of sin is, is really a piercing acknowledgement that your sin has offended a holy and righteous God. The same God who is, is your only hope and source of life and salvation. You see, this is a gracious work of the Spirit where he's turning our hearts towards God through conviction. And if you have someone or some people in your life that you're praying for their salvation, don't give up. And in particular, I would encourage you to pray that the Holy Spirit would convict them of their sins. That's what they need more than anything, conviction of sins, that he would bring about a conviction that can lead to salvation through repentance. And so the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin. Then he convicts the world concerning righteousness. Verse 10 says, Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. It might sound strange to talk about the world and righteousness, but what this is referring to is a false righteousness of the world. The Jews certainly thought that they were righteous. 
But Jesus saw right through it. He cut right through all their religiosity. And one of Jesus's most searing indictments we see in Matthew 23, 27, where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, on the outside, it looked like the Pharisees had it all together, that they were righteous, like a whitewashed tomb. It looked nice on the outside. They followed the letter of the law to the T and looked so religious, but Jesus's mere presence completely destroyed that religious facade. He was the true light that exposed their wickedness inside, and that's why every time he encountered them, there was friction. And now after Jesus leaves the Holy Spirit, continues this same work. He'll expose the false righteousness of the world for what it is. And then finally, the Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment. Verse 11 says, concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. Similar to righteousness, this is a false judgment. Does the world truly know how to judge between righteousness and unrighteousness? No, it can't. If it could, then it wouldn't have condemned the Holy Son of God. The world falsely judged Jesus and condemned him to a sinner's cross. But ironically, their false judgment actually led to the judgment of the ruler of this world, Satan. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, Satan was defeated. The powers of sin and darkness destroyed. And the ruler of this world has been judged. He is destined for doom and destruction. He's the one who's been lying from the beginning. And so those of this world that are following his ways are being judged just as he is. This conviction is supposed to bring their darkness into the light so that they may turn from it. And now there's something really important we need to consider here. How does the Holy Spirit accomplish this task of convicting the world? The goal of the conviction is always to bring about repentance, but how does the Holy Spirit actually do that? What are the means? When Jesus gives the Great Commission in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations, who is he talking to? Is Jesus talking to the Holy Spirit, telling the Holy Spirit to go do this? No, he's talking to his disciples. In Acts 1-8, when Jesus tells them, you're going to be my witnesses in, in, Judea, in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, He's not talking to the Holy Spirit. He's talking to his followers. The Holy Spirit accomplishes his mission through us. We don't just sit back and watch the Holy Spirit work. Now, truly, it is ultimately the Spirit alone that can can turn a heart from its sin to repentance, but he uses us to do that. Romans 10.14 emphasizes our part saying, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? The rhetorical answer is they can't. They can't believe if they've never heard and they can't hear if no one sends the message to them. You see, we play a vital role in the mission of God, the mission of Christ, the mission of the Spirit. We are agents of Christ in this world, empowered by the Holy Spirit to make the kingdom of God known. And this is the greatest responsibility and the greatest privilege we have to be tools in the hands of God to accomplish his mission. And the Holy Spirit is convicting the world, continuing the work of Christ, but he does it through us. 
which causes us to have to evaluate our lives. Are, are we living a life that does bring that conviction that the Holy Spirit is seeking to bring? Are we in line with the truth of God's word and the gospel? Or are we bearing false righteousness, false judgment like the world? We have to make sure that we are living lives in accordance with God's word so that we can be a part of this work of the Holy Spirit. But now let's pick back up in verse 12 to see how Jesus ends this teaching on the Holy Spirit. He says this in John 16, 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear it now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will speak not on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. Verse 15, right here at the end, is really one of the best summaries of the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in terms of their redemptive work. Jesus has already made it clear throughout his entire ministry that he only does what the Father tells him to do. He only says what the Father tells him to say. He perfectly carries out the mission of God in every way. But then, through the obedience that he shows, the Father then gives all things into the Son's hands. Just as Jesus says, all that the Father has is mine. Jesus is the full and perfect revelation of God to man. That's what we have described in Hebrews 1.1, where it says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. Then in turn, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will take what is his and declare it to you. He's continuing the ministry of Jesus. And notice in verse 13, it calls him the spirit of truth. It says he'll guide us into all the truth. That is the truth of Christ. This was specifically meant for the disciples that Jesus was talking to and preparing them for well, once he's ascended to heaven and the Spirit comes, the Spirit, in a sense, will fill in all the gaps in their understanding. The Spirit will clarify and fuse together everything that Jesus had taught them over the last three years. He'll connect the dots in a way where all the pieces fit together. And he says he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. He's reinforcing the truth of Christ. And the focus is found in verse 14. He will glorify me. That's interesting. The son glorified the father in all he did. And now the spirit glorifies the son in all he does. And again, this is a floodlight ministry of the spirit where it's as if the spirit is casting a spotlight on Jesus, highlighting him and what he did. He's the emphasis in the spirit's work. And and though these words were directed especially to these 11 disciples, the Spirit still works in our lives today when it comes to revealing the truth. You could call this the illuminating work of the Spirit. The Spirit illuminates or, or lights up, makes understandable what we could not understand on our own. He illuminates God's Word to us. You know, anybody can, can pick up this book and read it, as a book and understand quite a few things in here. You can even memorize tons of verses in it. You can grow up hearing it 
preached and taught every week, but without the Holy Spirit's illuminating power, this remains just a really old book. But the Spirit, the Spirit guides the believer into all truth. And we understand the supernatural realities of this book and the power of God's Word that it possesses. And one of the things I've been passionate about for a long time is the fact that every single Christian with the Spirit within them can read God's Word and understand it for themselves. There's, there's no secret codes embedded in here. There's no conspiracy theories, no hidden formulas that only an enlightened few can understand. But in my time in student ministry, I talked to so many teenagers that didn't read the Bible because they, they didn't think that they could understand it on their own. And sadly, I don't think that's unique to teenagers either. There's many adults, perhaps a decent amount in here today, that you, that you don't feel confident that you can read the Bible for yourself and actually understand it. And I want to encourage you right now that if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit within you. And if you have the Holy Spirit within you, he will guide you into all truth. And you can read God's word for yourself and understand it and benefit from it. Now, does that mean you'll understand every single thing every time you read it? No, certainly not. I, I don't understand everything I read in the Bible all the time either. But I do know I want to keep growing and diving deeper and deeper into God's word. And the spirit empowers me for that task. And we so desperately need his word. We believe it's the inspired word of God. This, this book contains everything that God deemed necessary that we need to know about him and how to live a life that's pleasing to him. And what you get here on Sunday mornings is not enough. I promise you that, Lord willing, I will lay open God's word accurately for you every Sunday. That's, that's my goal. But you need more than just these 25 to 30 minutes. This is food for your soul. And I bet you don't just eat one meal a week. If you ate just one meal a week, you would be pretty severely malnourished. And in the same way, you don't need just one spiritual meal a week. Think of this as just an appetizer, but you need a balanced diet of God's word throughout the week, and that requires you digging into it yourself. And so I want to encourage you, encourage all of us to dig into God's word a little deeper this week than we did last week, no matter where you're at or what level of of time you put into it before, try to put in a little bit more time and effort this week, knowing that the Spirit empowers us for that work as we do it. And one thing I try to pray myself every time I sit down to study God's Word is that I pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate my heart and mind to understand the things of God. I try to preface my Bible time with that prayer, trying to come humbly before God, asking that the Spirit will do what only the Spirit can do. I'll do my part, trusting that the Spirit will do His part. And then as we spend time in God's Word and grow in our understanding of God, then we live lives in accordance with what we read there. And, and through that, then we can fulfill the mission of God that He's given to every single believer through the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you join me in praying?